Okay. All right, let's turn back to uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 this morning. In Paul's epistle to Titus, he wrote that we are to be looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our blessed hope involves the assurance that when we die, our soul will be ushered into the presence of God for eternity. And this is the promise of God for all who put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior from sin and death and hell. But more than this, our hope involves the sure anticipation that our dead bodies will be resurrected and rejoined to our souls to live and reign with God forever. We're not going to be remaining in some kind of disembodied uh, spirit state forever. We're going to have a glorious body similar to that of the Lord Jesus that will house our perfected souls for eternity. And this aspect of our hope will occur at the coming of Christ for his saints and is the topic of our passage today. Evidently, the church at Thessalonica had not yet been fully exposed to this teaching. It was not that they were unaware of a general resurrection at the coming of Christ for the saints. They anticipated that coming. They thought it was imminent that it could happen at any time. But since Paul had been with them, some of their group had died, and they feared that those people might somehow miss out on the glorious appearing of the Lord Jesus. Now, this was adding to the sorrow of their loss, which is natural, and it seems they conveyed their concern through Timothy upon his return uh, to the Apostle Paul. So Paul informs them of what will happen in the event that we call the rapture of the church. He comforts them by citing the certainty of our resurrection hope and what will happen when Christ comes to escort both the dead and living in Christ to be with him forever. And Paul first cites the foundation of this hope and then explains the rapture event uh, uh, excuse me, <clears throat> which is a source of comfort for all believers. So let's ask the Lord's blessing as we approach this passage this morning. Heavenly Father, we're again thankful today that your word gives us information about our future, about what's going to happen to our soul, to our body. We're thankful, Lord, that we can be comforted about these things when uh, we face the loss of our loved ones. Uh, we pray, Lord, today as we come before your table, uh, we'll be reminded of these things. We're thinking back to your death and resurrection, but also, Lord, you said that we are to do this until you come. So the coming of the Lord Jesus is in view as well. Help us, Lord, to be encouraged today as we remember this great uh, truth from your word. We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. All right, before we uh, begin today, I just want to give you some preliminary considerations concerning the rapture of the church. The doctrine of eschatology in the Bible or the study of future things is not really uh, something that is cut and dry. 
One thing that all believers must hold to is that Jesus is coming again. So no matter what your doctrinal background might be or your church background, you need to believe that Jesus is coming again as he said he would and as the Bible proclaims. But when and how that's going to take place is another matter upon which uh, not everybody agrees. There are differences of, of opinion related to the millennial age and the rapture of the, of the church. Uh, there are those who believe that Jesus will reign on the earth for a thousand years based on Revelation chapter 20, but some believe that that passage is figurative language, and since it's th that literal reign's not mentioned anywhere else, that uh, it's not talking about a literal period of time. Others believe that the church will usher in the reign of Christ as it triumphs in him uh, through the world. Uh, so there are differences of ideas on what the millennium, uh, millennium is and when that's going to take place. And even for those who believe in a literal reign of Christ on the earth, there are different views as to when the rapture is going to occur. All agree again that prior to Christ's second coming in judgment, there will be a period of time known as the tribulation. And it's a time where God's wrath will be outpoured on Christ's rejectors who are living on the earth. Some believe that God will rapture the church before that time, before the tribulation. Others believe he'll come in the middle of the tribulation. And still others believe the church will go through the tribulation and they will be raptured at the very end when Christ comes down to judge the nations. And all claim to have uh, scriptural proof for their positions. Now, when we put all this information together we have in the Bible about future things, our position is called pre-tribulational, pre-millennial rapture of the church. In other words, we believe before uh, the millennium, there's going to be a tribulation period. And before that period comes, God's going to take the church in what we call the rapture. Now, our purpose today is not to set out an argument for that position, but to explain the passage as Paul uh, used it to comfort the church back in his day. And it's an all-important passage because it's the one from which we derive the concept of rapture in relationship to our, re our resurrection and Christ's coming for the church. So let's take a look here at what the Apostle Paul uh, reveals to that ancient church. And we see, first of all, the foundation of our resurrection hope in verses 13 and 14. <clears throat> and this is out of uh, uh, Paul's concern for the condition of the church. And he says, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. So first of all, we see his concern here for this church. He doesn't want them to be ignorant or confused about what happens to believers when they die. Uh, this is evidently another area where uh, they were deficient in their understanding. Uh, there hadn't been time to clearly explain these things. 
Paul must have at some point taught about the second coming of Christ and the day of the Lord because he mentions this in the next chapter as something they don't really need uh, instruction about. Uh, uh, They also may have been taught about the resurrection of the body in the sense that uh, Martha understood it when Jesus talked to her about uh, raising Lazarus from the dead. He was asking her if she believed in the resurrection of the dead, and she responded, as most Jews would in that day, yes, I believe there's a resurrection in the last day. Uh, So they believed in a resurrection, they believed in the second coming of Christ, but they did not understand how these things fit together and how uh, uh, those who had already died uh, would fit into the coming of Christ. This is a puzzle to them. Perhaps they thought that these people who had died would somehow miss this glorious event and not be involved in it. So it caused them some sorrow over the death of these loved ones that was really unmerited, as Paul goes on to explain. Now, Paul uses a comforting word to describe those who have passed on. He uh, mentions in verse um, uh, 3, those who have, uh, 13, those who have fallen asleep. Uh, So uh, this particular word is not something that's strictly Christian in nature. The Greeks and the Romans also alluded to death in this way, likely because when the body is being prepared for uh, burial, it looks like a body asleep. But it reminds us as believers that death is not the end for a Christian. Our body dies, our soul separates from it, It goes to heaven to be with the Lord, and the body is uh, placed in the grave, and in a sense, it's, it's sleeping there. It's waiting to be awakened by the Lord when he returns, and that body will be reconstructed no matter where it is, as long as you're a believer, and it will be rejoined to your soul. So this was not an ideology of ancient religions. It was uh uh, peculiar to Christianity. So these people really had um, a hope of a body, bodily resurrection that nobody else would have. Paul is also concerned that these believers should not mourn in the same way as those who have no hope. Now, obviously, it's not wrong for us to be sorrowful when we lose someone that we love, but if those Uh, that person saved, we know that they're saved, we know they're in a better place, they're with the Lord, and that we will see them once again. So that kind of takes the edge off of the sorrow and reminds us of our blessed hope. This is, again, not the case for those without Christ, not then, back at that time, and not now. As a matter of fact, uh, this was not really associated with uh, pagan belief in, in history, as many of them wrote. For instance, Aeschylus wrote, once a man dies, there is no resurrection. Theocritus wrote, there's no hope for those who are alive, but those who have died are without hope. I mean, there is hope for those who are alive, but for those who have died, there is no hope. 
uh, Catullus wrote, when once our brief light sets, there is a one perpetual night through which we must sleep. So again, no hope of any kind of resurrection. And then even in Thessalonica, there was an epitaph found on a grave which read, after death, there is no revival. After the grave, no meeting of those who have loved each other on earth. So there was, although there might have been an idea of the soul going on to some place, there was no uh, view of the soul and the body being reunited in the afterlife. Now in our world today, uh, people may have all kinds of ideas about death, but the only thing that offers true hope is the Christian faith, as Paul goes on to explain here. <coughs> In verse 14, we have the basis of our resurrection hope. What is that? Well, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Christ's death and resurrection are the basis of our hope. It's securely laid on that foundation. Now note that Paul does not say Jesus slept here, but that Jesus died. That means he bore the full ramifications of death in relationship to sin. His death bore our punishment of hell for all the sins that we have committed. His death paid the price of our ransom. His resurrection proved he had power over sin, death, and hell. Death could not hold him in because he was not a sinner, and he is life itself in all its facets, physical, spiritual, and eternal. And he gives life like that to all those who put their faith and trust in him. Now, Paul says, if we believe, and we can translate that, since we believe, that's what this uh, structure here means. So since we believe that Jesus died, then we can expect these things to happen uh, uh, to us. So when we place our faith in Christ for salvation, we have the assurance that all who sleep or die in him will be raised up even as he was. His victory assures our victory. Uh, J. Sidlow, uh, Sidlow Baxter wrote uh, a poem on this topic. I wanted to read it to you. <clears throat> no longer must the mourners weep and call departed Christians dead. For death is hallowed into sleep and every grave becomes a bed. Now once more Eden's door open stands to mortal eyes. Now at last old things past Christ is risen, we too shall rise. So that's again just putting together the Christian hope. So just as sure as Jesus rose from the dead, we can be assured that he will bring with him the dearly departed at his coming for the truth. That's what he says here in verse 14. Even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Now, the phrase in Jesus means through Jesus. <clears throat> the reason they can be brought uh, back together with their body is because of what Jesus did. So this again indicates that through his atoning work, death and its con uh, consequences have been defeated. Through his resurrection, 
death then becomes like a sleep for the body, which awaits his return with the souls of departed saints. So the Thessalonians need not fear that their loved ones would miss out on this appearing of Christ, but they would actually be an integral part of it. So what is going to happen at this time? Well, in the rest of the chapter, we have revelation concerning the resurrection and rapture at Christ's appearing. So let's take a look here at how the apostle explains all of this. Note in verse 15, the first thing he says here is uh, giving us the source of this revelation. Where did it come from? For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. Paul says the information he's giving to them has come from the Lord. That means it's true, it's authoritative, we can put our trust in it. But the problem is that we have no recorded words of Jesus to this end. The Lord Jesus spoke about the coming of the Son of Man, the resurrection of the dead, certain things about the tribulation, and uh, his, his coming to the earth in judgment. But he really didn't give us any specific information about the order of events uh, as Paul cites them here. So where does this come from then? Well, <clears throat> Paul would have to be alluding to a revelation that either was not recorded and he, had, he was privy to it, or that God gave this revelation to himself or one of the other New Testament prophets in that uh, time frame. We know that Paul and Silas were recognized as prophets. We also know that, uh, in, uh, that, that Paul was sequestered for a period of time after his conversion, where he may have been receiving revelation from the Lord Jesus. So it could be that during that period of time, the Lord revealed this to him, or at some other point in time, maybe even in answer to this question that the Thessalonian church had, the Lord gave this special revelation to the Apostle Paul concerning this condition. At any rate, what he says is affirmed to be from the Lord. It has God's authority behind it. Therefore, we should take it as true, and therefore something that's going to happen. Now, as he explains these things, let's see what he says here. First of all, he mentions these two groups. First of all, we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord. So the first group are people who will be living when the Lord comes. How many of you want to be in that group? All right, Uh, since I started my ministry, I have from time to time said, I think that I might be alive when the Lord comes. I hope so, I think so, but we don't know for sure. But there will be a group of believers when Jesus comes who are alive on the earth, they're waiting for his coming. So that pertains to that particular generation. Now note Paul puts himself in that group Uh, because we know that Paul had this hope 
Uh, we believe that New Testament teaches the imminent coming of the Lord. It could happen at any time. So when he's alive, even way back there in the first century, he's expecting the Lord to come. The Thessalonian church must have been expecting the Lord to come because they were worried about people who would not be living when he came. So this is the expectation of the church, that there will be Christians living when Jesus returns. And they also need to be living in a way, or they're, um, uh, they're encouraged by Paul to be living in a way that will please the Lord when he does come. Uh, going back again to that verse in Titus chapter 2, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So it's important that when we're looking for him to come, we're living in a way that uh, is pleasing to him. All right, so this is the one group. And then the other group is those who are asleep or those who have passed on, those who have died, and their bodies, of course, remain here in this world, but their souls are with the Lord. Now, by now, 2024, that would include millions, if not billions, of believers in history. It will not include Old Testament saints at this time, whom I believe will be raised up just prior to the millennium with the tribulation saints, but all the church age saints. And the living saints, according to this verse, will not have priority or precedence or some kind of advantage over those who have died before them. The, uh, uh, Paul says in verse 15, uh, we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. We won't have an advantage over them. We won't go before them. We won't be uh, uh, something special that they are not going to be. Uh, the Lord's going to take us all up to together. <clears throat> as a matter of fact, it seems like they might be the ones that have precedent as we look at the, uh, the orientation of all this. Now, the next thing we want to note here is in verse 16, and that is the Lord Jesus himself will descend from heaven. Uh, that means there's not going to be any kind of an, uh, a mediary. Uh, he's not going to come and an angel's going to be taking his place. He's going to return as he promised for his people. It's going to be a personal and visible return for the saints. I want to go back to John chapter 14 for a minute and just remind you of what Jesus said at the Last Supper. <clears throat> I'm going to read uh, verses uh, 2 and 3. John 14. He says, In my Father's house are many mansions or dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I, I go to prepare a place for you and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So he promised he was coming back for the saints. And this is uh, the explanation 
of that time and what will happen. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> We're told that his appearing is going to be accompanied by certain things. First of all, a shout, then with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. Now, there's a little bit of perhaps um, confusion about uh, what's involved here. <clears throat> um, uh, there there uh, uh, could be different aspects involved here. For instance, uh, should this be taken as one aspect? In other words, an archangel comes and shouts like the blast of a trumpet. So all, all three things are just applying to one. Or it could have two aspects. Uh, the shout of the archangel, and then you hear the blaring of a trumpet. Or it could be all three are different. The shout then would be uh, probably the shout of the Lord Jesus calling those who know him out of the grave. And then uh, some type of voice or, or noise from the archangel. And finally, the blast of the trumpet of God uh, calling those people to the Lord Jesus. I kind of think that all three of them have some significance here. Uh, in any event, it's going to be something that will draw immediate attention. Every believer, at least, will hear that trumpet call. And again, it's not completely clear here if everybody in the world will hear that call. Uh, is it just going to be the saints or is it going to be everybody? Well, maybe it would be something similar to when the Apostle Paul got saved. You remember that Paul uh, was uh, struck with this great glorious light and he heard a voice speaking to him. He could determine what that voice was saying. But those who were with him say they heard a sound, but they did not hear anything that they could understand. So possibly the world will hear that noise and not know what it is, uh, but they certainly will not escape the vanishing of millions of people. So somehow they will recognize that this is a, an event that takes place and they'll have to try to explain it in some way. Then he goes on to explain the order of the rapture at the end of verse 16. <clears throat> and the dead in Christ will rise first. So that means uh, the dead, those who have passed before this time, their bodies, wherever they might be, scattered all over the world, will be raised up, they'll be reconstructed, they'll be glorified, and the soul and the body will be joined together once again. That body will be fit for heaven for all of eternity. It will be similar uh, to what we find uh, happening to the Lord Jesus when he was raised to the dead. He's the first fruits and his glorified uh, body went back to, to heaven, be with the Lord. It was recognizable, but it could do things that a, uh, a normal body could not do, such as appear in a locked room or uh, seemingly uh, just uh, vanish out of sight. So there will be things about that body that will be quite amazing as we anticipate uh, being glorified again. 
So that's the first thing that will happen. They'll be raised up. Then in verse 17, we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So they'll be coming up first and then we'll all be joined together as we go up into heaven and we see the Lord face to face uh, for the first time and uh, we get to spend eternity with him. All right, so we're caught up together with them. Now, this is the verb from which we derive uh, the, uh, the, the concept of a rapture. <clears throat> That's not the word that is in the Greek, but it is in the Latin. The Latin Vulgate translates this word with the Latin term rapturo, which means, uh, which we take our English rapture from. But in the Greek, it means to be caught up, to be snatched up uh, in really kind of a forceful way. Uh, One commentator described it this way. The verb denotes a sudden forcible seizure, an irresistible act of catching away due to divine activity. And... uh, uh, this is something that's described back in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 to 52, that explains to us this happens just in a moment of time. Uh, so quickly, you, you can really not even uh, describe when it happens. But this is what Paul wrote there. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. So the dead are changed, the living are changed, and we uh, get to go to glory. Uh, We're told here in verse 17, we'll be going up in the clouds to meet the Lord. Uh, Again, uh, clouds are often identifying something glorious, something wonderful. When Jesus went back to heaven, he went up in a cloud. This may have been a bright cloud of glory. And so that's going to happen at this time as well. But uh, note also that this is uh, going to take place in the air. Now that would be the upper atmosphere. And uh, it's, it's interesting if we think about it. When that term is used elsewhere, five of the seven times it's used, it does mean simply the, uh, the um, upper atmosphere of uh, our world. However, uh, it also is mentioned, and Paul wrote about this, as the abiding place of supernatural beings. And uh, it uh, it alludes to the realm of Satan, uh, who is called the prince of the power of the air. So he has uh, control, so to speak, of the world, as much as God gives him, from that position. And us meeting him, uh, Christ in the air, suggests that Christ overrules Satan's power through his work on the cross. So the rapture is really going to be a signal that Satan's current control of the world is coming to a very rapid end. Another commentator uh, wrote this about it, that the Lord chooses to meet his saints there in the air, 
on the demon's home ground, so to speak, shows something of his complete mastery over them. So that idea might be uh, involved there as well. As we close out today, let's take a look here at the outcome of resurrection and rapture. Verse 17 closes, And thus we shall always be with the Lord. We're here for a short period of time. Uh, Even if we live here a hundred years, what is that in light of eternity? Uh, In our glorified state, we shall inhabit a body that's fit for eternity, forever. John wrote in Revelation chapter 21, there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Neither are we going to have to deal with sin and temptation and anxiety and failure and anything that might displease the Lord or plague our minds or emotions or sensibilities. So that ought to cause you to rejoice and be comforted about your future. That we are one day going to be with the Lord, not just in spirit, not just our soul but a glorified body in which we will serve him for all of eternity. So that ought to encourage us because that's why Paul wrote it in verse 18. Therefore, comfort or encourage one another with these words. They were discomforted because they didn't know what was going to happen to these believers who had passed on. They perhaps didn't fully know what was going to happen to them either. So the Lord encourages them by these truths, that he is coming again. It doesn't matter if you died previous to that coming. You're going to be included in it. You'll return with him. You'll receive your glorified body, and you'll live forever to be with the Lord in that state. So as we close today, let's draw a few applications. First of all, are you concerned about what will happen to you when you die? Do you have the assurance of the blessed hope that your soul will go to heaven to be with the Lord? That one day your dead body will be resurrected to house your soul for all of eternity. If not, then you don't have any hope. All you have to look forward to is an eternity in hell paying the price of all of your sins. Then, Are you concerned about people that don't have any hope? Because there are thousands of them around us today. Are you concerned about reaching them with the gospel so they will not spend eternity in hell? And finally, are you rejoicing in this truth uh, that Christ has paid the penalty of your sin He's uh, provided you the blessed hope for all of eternity. And as we think about this, are you at all anxious to see the Lord Jesus face to face? You ever think about that? Is there any kind of concern in our busy lives? And are you living in such a way that when he does return, uh, he won't be ashamed and neither will you because you're trying to please him in every way. Our Heavenly Father, we do pray this morning 
that you would encourage us with these thoughts. You will comfort and bless us. We're thankful, Lord, to know that um, we don't have to have a doubt about our future. We don't have to be fearful about it. We know that you'll be with us as we pass through the valley of the shadow of death. We know that we'll be instantly in the presence of the Lord. And Lord, that as we leave behind our, our body, we also leave that in your care because we know that one day you'll resurrect it and you'll bring it to, back together with our souls in a glorious state. So Lord, help us to be encouraged by these things personally, but Lord, also help us to be concerned about those in the world today who have no hope. Not just pray for them, Lord, but to find ways we might witness to them through the gospel of Christ. So, Lord, as we come before your table, we just pray your blessing and uh, help us to be remembering these things that encourage us each and every day. We ask in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.